So last week we started uh, walking through. In the book of Revelation, there are seven letters to seven churches in Asia Minor. And so last week we, um, we started walking through these. Um, the first one was the, the letter to Ephesus. And now we have the, the letter to Smyrna. And I want to remind you that um, as we read through, through these letters in the book of Revelation, there are lots of, there are lots of symbols, there are lots of metaphor, uh, and it's important for us to sort of uh, understand what these things uh, mean. It's not a code. We're not looking for a code. We're not cracking a code. Um, but there are, there are metaphors that we need to look at. And it's also important to, to realize that these are real places, uh, real churches, real people uh, experiencing real things. And so on occasion, most of, the, most of the time, it's important for us to understand uh, what these locations are and what they might have experiencing so that we can better understand what Jesus is saying to these churches uh, through Pastor John, who's in exile on the island of Patmos. Um, so just want to remind you of that. Uh, so we're going to look this morning at Revelation 2, 8 through 11. Uh, it's a short little letter. Uh, you'll find it on the screen behind me or in front of you, or if you've got it with you, you can follow along that way. Revelation 2, 8 through 11. Before we read, let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as we gather around your book, your word, the scriptures, we We pray that somehow, some way, it will come to life for us, that as we read it and listen to it and discover new things, that, that you would speak a word uh, to us, that we would hear your voice. Because we know that your voice is, is strong and it's creative, it's generative, it, it makes things new, and so we pray for that this morning. Um, change us, even if it's in just just one small way, we ask humbly that you, would, that you would give us what we need. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts that understand. In Jesus' name, amen. So Jesus says to John, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. We will go that <laughs> That's a letter. Certainly is something, isn't it? 
So as Jesus people, we have this thing, this big fancy Greek word called the parousia. Have you heard of this word before? Some people pronounce it the parousia, the parousia. It's just a Greek word. Uh, and it's an important word. Uh, and it just simply means uh, the coming or the presence or the arrival. I like that. The arrival. That's my favorite translation of that word. The, the arrival. So we use this fancy Greek word, parousia, to talk about the second coming of Jesus. Have you heard this? The second coming of Jesus. When Jesus is going to come back and take all the things in this world that are wrong and make them right again. So the parousia is this idea that Jesus is going to come back and Jesus is going to heal the world. Jesus is going to take that which is broken and Jesus is going to make it whole again, right? Heaven is described at the, at the very end of this book. Heaven will come down and become one with earth. Now, God isn't going to blow the earth up in some sort of Armageddon nuclear war sort of thing. Everything is going to go boom and God's going to make things, recreate things. No, the vision in the book of Revelation is that heaven, what, what, the book, what John calls the new Jerusalem, is going to come down out of heaven and heaven and earth will become one. And all of creation will then become what God wants it to be, intends it to be. It will be big and bold and beautiful and gorgeous, and there will be no more pain. There will be no more sorrow, and the tears will be no more. Have you heard that? That's from the end of this book. But here's the thing, though. We don't know when that's going to happen. Like We have no idea. Even Jesus didn't know when it was going to happen. In fact, when he was asked, he said, I don't know. No one knows. Only the Father knows when that's going to happen. So don't spend your time trying to create charts and trying to figure out like when it's some May, like a few years back, it was supposed to be May something or other. And of course, it didn't happen because nobody knows when it's going to happen. So, but eventually, God's going to come back and make all things new. We call that the arrival. Oh, I like that. Heaven's going to arrive. The second coming, Jesus making things new again. Here's the deal. I was hoping it would happen last Thursday or Friday. Um, Saturday would have been fine. Like I'd have been cool with Saturday too, right? Because first, awesome, right? Woohoo! Second, because then I wouldn't have to teach on this letter, right? Because this isn't a fun letter. Um, this is the second time I've taught on this letter and it doesn't get easier the second time you do it. It's kind of like, oh. Because when I read this letter, I read it and I'm kind of like, I don't know if I like this one. It's sort of depressing. Like I read this thing and it's sort of a, it's sort of a, it's sort of a downer. Now, there's some really good things in here that we're going to talk about, uh, but let's be honest about this. This letter isn't fun to read. It's kind of like, oh, that's it? That's all you got? Like, Jesus, you're writing this real letter to these real people in this real place and time, and that's all you have to say for reals? So let me give you just a little bit of paraphrase. This is my paraphrase of what's happening in this letter, just so that we can sort of, let's be on the same page. Let's, let's figure out what's going on here. Jesus essentially says this, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, the one who died so Jesus has been through some stuff. The one who died and came to life again. He says, look, I know your affliction. 
I know your poverty. I know, I know that things are hard right now. And I know that, that, life, that life isn't going the way that you want it to go. I know that you feel as though you've lost all control. I know that you feel as though, as though you are completely empty, as though you have nothing left. I know what people are saying about you. And I know that what people are saying about you is making you feel, making you feel marginalized, making you feel ostracized, like you're, like you're, like you're being pushed to the edges. And I know that some of those people are, are supposed to be your people on your side, and yet what they are saying and believing and spreading about you is sort of pushing you to the outside. Here's the thing. Now, now don't be afraid, Jesus says. It's going to get worse. You're going to suffer persecution. It's not going to last forever. There will be an end to it. You'll suffer persecution for 10 days, so there's a fixed amount of time here. It's not, it's not going to last forever, but before it gets better, it's going to get worse, Jesus says. So hang in there. I'd be as faithful as you can for as long as you live. That's it. That's the letter. That's the basic message from Jesus to the people in Smyrna, and by extension, to you and me. Right? I know that you are suffering. It's going to get worse. Hang in there and be as faithful as you can. What a message! So, before we dive into that, I think it's important for us to, to once again, let's talk a little bit about Smyrna. Who are these people? What might they be experiencing that would cause Jesus to say the things that Jesus says here. So Smyrna uh, was a city that was 35 miles north of Ephesus. Right? It was a city that, that is characterized by being fiercely loyal to the Roman Empire. In fact, they lived by the motto, Rome first in all things. Or we could say, make Rome great again. Right? Rome first in all things. It was also a very, very proud city. Like they minted their own coins, and on their coins it said this, First in Asia in beauty and size. So this is a proud city. It like felt really good about itself, right? They often competed with other cities uh, to see who could be the best city in the whole of the Roman Empire. And in fact, they were so good at it that they competed against, they were chosen out of 10 different cities in AD 23, Rome, the Roman Empire, the, the highest power, the highest authority chose Rome over 10 other cities to be the site of a temple dedicated to emperor worship. Right? So they were going to build this big, huge temple in, in honor of and in worship to the Roman emperor. And at the time, emperor worship was mandatory. You didn't have a choice. Right? So once a year, right, this, wasn't a, this wasn't an everyday thing, but once a year, Roman citizens would go to the Roman temple and they would burn incense on an altar to Caesar, to worship Caesar, or face all sorts of different consequences, things like prison or death. Now, in Smyrna, there was also a, a heavy population of Jewish people, right? So 
Here's the deal. Jewish people didn't have to participate in the, the incense burning ceremonies to worship Caesar. They were given an actual certificate of exemption so that they didn't have to worship. They didn't, so when they went to the, the incense burning ceremony, they would show up and they would show their, their certificate of, of exemption and they would say, you don't have to be here. You can go home. Don't worry about it. Well, apparently there was a small sect, a small little number of Jews, not all the Jewish people living in Smyrna, but there was a small number of Jewish people who you would think would be on the side of a lot of Jewish people who were now Jesus people, Christians. Well, they thought that the Jesus people weren't real Jews. So to show their fierce loyalty to Rome, they went to the Roman authorities and said, these people aren't Jews. You can't give them their certificate of of exemption. They're fake Jews. This isn't happening. So they didn't get their certificate of exemption. So when they went to the temple and they refused to participate in the incense burning Roman Caesar worship ceremony, all sorts of horrible things began to happen. They were slandered. They were branded. People would no longer do business with followers of Jesus. They were marginalized. Their their businesses would have been boycotted. Their shops would have been taken away from them. In some cases, their homes would have been ransacked and destroyed. They couldn't get jobs. They couldn't find work. And for some, it was worse. They were arrested. They were tried. They were beaten. They were put in prison. Sometimes they actually faced execution because they refused to worship Caesar. So when Jesus says, I know your affliction and your poverty, we now understand a little bit about what Jesus was talking about. In fact, that word affliction, it's flipsis in Greek. It means extreme pressure. It would have brought to mind a mental picture of someone being tortured to death slowly by having a a boulder placed on their back. I know your affliction and your poverty. I know and understand and see the extreme pressure you are under. I know. I know your suffering. Interesting, isn't it? So I think one of the things that that this letter sort of reveals to us is is something along these lines, is even if we're following Jesus, even if we're Jesus people, even if we're super committed, it doesn't exempt us from suffering. Like suffering, and we know this, suffering is indiscriminate. Suffering is everywhere. Even if we're Jesus people, we experience suffering. Now, there are those who will teach that if we just live the right way, if we just behave the right way, and maybe even more importantly, if we just believe the right things, then everything will be good. God will be on our side. We will be blessed, and we will have super fruitful lives. There are those who teach that, but we know if we're being honest about things, that that is a hollow teaching. We know that to be a hollow teaching because we live in a world where suffering happens. We live in a world where countries invade other countries and hundreds if not thousands of people die 
needlessly, some of whom are followers of Jesus. We live in a world where we lose those we love. We live in a world where those we love get really sick, sometimes deathly ill, really sick. We live in a world where relationships get messed up, sometimes because of things that we do, sometimes because of the things that other people do to us. We live in a world where we get betrayed, where we get slandered, where people talk about us behind our backs. We experience suffering all the time. See, here's the deal. We have expectations about this life, especially when we're young, right? We're growing up. We have dreams and plans and goals, and we're like, this is, this is how I expect life to go for me. It's going to be awesome. And we, we have all of these expectations. And then as we get older and we live life, we realize that real life hits us and shows up. And it's like, oh, that's way less than what I thought life, what I expected life to be. It's hard. It's difficult. Sometimes we ask painful questions like, why am I even here? Do I even have a purpose? What's this all for? So being a follower of Jesus doesn't exempt us from any of that. We all, we experience suffering. And so it's into the suffering of the people of Smyrna that Jesus says, yeah, I see it. I know it. I know your suffering and your poverty. Yeah, it's going to get worse. So uh, hang in there. And just be as faithful as you can. Okay. Now, if I'm in Smyrna, I don't know about you, and that's the letter I get, I'm probably thinking to myself, and maybe you're thinking these things too, and maybe you've thought them in the past, that's it? Really? That's all you got. Can't you do something about this? Like, you have all the power to change these circumstances, and you can do it right now, and you do nothing. You say, it's going to get worse. Be as faithful. That's it. That's all you got for me. And it's not hard for me to imagine these people who have a sort of reaching back into their long history, their tradition that's been handed down to them from generation to generation to generation. It's not hard for me to imagine that that these people living in Smyrna, reaching back into that tradition and pulling up some things that are very important. Some words that have real meaning in times like that. Words like this, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I bear pain in my soul and sorrow in my heart all day long? How long? Why, God, have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Awake, rise from your slumber. Do not reject us forever. Those are from the Psalms. Those are real questions in this book that we love called the Bible. Those are real people expressing real pain and real doubt and real anger at God. Questioning God. Questioning God's motivations. Asking, where the are you? You know what that's called? It's called lament. And it's a, it's a deeply held tradition. And I don't know if we do it very well anymore. It's called lament. And I'm guessing that that's what these people are doing. Right? And it's what we do. Like, we've been there. You know what? Those cries, those cries are okay. In fact, I think that often those cries are good. Those cries are exactly what we need. It is perfectly legitimate, and you have all the permission in the world to question God. You do. Do it. Don't be afraid. Because when we question God, when we question God's motivation, when we question, where are you, God? We wonder if God is present or if God is not present. When we say those words out loud, how long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? It doesn't mean we're saying that God isn't good. Although we might feel like it. It doesn't mean that we're saying that. Because if we believe that God isn't good, then we wouldn't expect anything good to come from God anyway, so why would we cry out? It would be completely pointless. Because we know God isn't good. So we cry out because we know. We know. We question God because we know. We believe somewhere deep in the deepest parts of ourselves that at God's core, God is good and loving and gracious and merciful. In fact, I believe that questioning God is like this deep, profound, guttural expression of faith. Because in spite of our circumstances, in spite of all the things that are happening around us, that are happening to us, whether we caused them or not, we refuse to believe that God has abandoned us. Oh, try it sometime. How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? It's perfectly legitimate. So it's in the middle of those cries that Jesus says this, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, the one who died. He's been through it. The one who died came to life again. I know your afflictions. I know your poverty. How would Jesus know unless Jesus was close? How would Jesus know how would God know unless God is close? Remember what we're doing in, these, in this book of Revelation, right? Apocalypse, that word, means the, uh, the unveiling of that which was previously unseen. It's like we're, we're taking a curtain between heaven and earth, and we're showing how things really are, 
How would God know unless God is really close? Remember, Jesus is the one who's walking among the lampstands, which are the churches. Jesus is the one who is well acquainted with all kinds of suffering, who is well acquainted with all kinds of affliction, betrayal, and God is never far away. He knows and understands, and he promises to give us new life. You'll suffer persecution for 10 days. It's not going to last forever. There's, like, there is an end to it. Now, I want to sort of bring this to, the, to sort of an ending. I don't know how to end something like this, but we'll, we'll try our best. We'll try to land the plane. I want us to look at verse 9. It says this, I know your afflictions and your poverty. Now, that word poverty... Uh, is you, it's an extreme word for poverty. It means complete, utter, total destitution. Complete and total destitution. So living in a wealthy city that's really proud of itself, that feels like it's the best ever, these people are poor. Not just poor, but totally, completely destitute. These are people who had nothing left. These are people who didn't know where they were going to get their next meal to feed their families, their children. I know your affliction and your poverty, your, your extreme destitution. And then he says, yet you are rich. I know your affliction and your poverty, and yet you are rich. That word rich also means full. Jesus says, I know you feel completely empty, yet actually, you are very full. Huh? How can it be both? How can it be two things at once, empty and full? Why would he say something like that? So, as an illustration, I have two candles. One is a small, thin candle. One is a short, wide candle. Right? So this one is skinny. This one is thick. Right? So this one has a lot more wax than this one. Right? Lots more wax. But notice, as I light these candles, you can notice that they both have roughly the same flame. They both give off roughly the same amount of light. They give off roughly the same amount of heat and warmth. And there's an obvious reason for this, right? Because it's not the wax. It's not the wax that produces the light. It's, it's the wick that produces the light. The light, the heat, the warmth, the power comes from the wick. They have the same wick. Very different wax, but they have the same wick. It's like every one of us in this world is born into the world sort of like a candle. We got wax and we got a wick. Every one of us has the same sort of wick. Not all of us have the same amount of wax. While we're around, we have a wick. 
And as long as we have a wick, we have the potential to produce an incredible amount of light and warmth and power. While the candle is lit, not only can it produce light and heat, but you know what it can do? It can light other candles. And it can light another candle, and another candle, and another candle, and another candle. Endlessly light other candles. That's how powerful the wick is. It doesn't matter how much wax you have. In fact, some people say that if you have less wax, the easier it is to light other candles. I think that's sort of what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying, I know you feel like this little, this little candle. I know that you look at other people and you see all their wax. They've got a whole bunch more wax. But don't forget, Jesus says, you have a wick and it is lit. You are rich beyond your imagination. And no amount of wax can change that. I know your poverty, yet you are rich. Does anyone know who the richest man in the world is? Elon Musk. At the time of, of me looking this up on Google, according to Forbes magazine, it was $254 billion. Then he bought Twitter, so now it's $210 billion. But he still owns Twitter, so I don't know how that works. It's like, he still owns Twitter. He spent money on it, but he still owns it, so he's still worth the same. That's a lot of wax right there. Jeff Bezos is up there. Bill Gates is up there. Like these people are, are way up there. Like all of these people have an incredible amount of wax. Like unimaginable amount of wax. But the wick they have is the same wick that each of us has. That means that none of those people have any more access to the power and love and grace and warmth and light of God than any of us. No amount of wax can change that. Think about people like, like Martin Luther King Jr. Think about people like, like Mother Teresa. Two people who had way less wax than any of those other three dudes. Like way less. But those two people had a much bigger more deeply profound impact on the whole world than any of those other three, even if you put them together. In fact, you could say that those two people, they just were all wick. They didn't have any wax at all. And yet, those two people changed the world forever and ever and ever. I know your poverty, and yet... You are rich. Have you forgotten how rich you are? Have you forgotten? Because oftentimes we pay much, too much attention to the wax, right? We do. We pay, we pay so much attention to, to money and wealth and things, the accumulation of stuff, relationships and status and all of that stuff. But do you know how really rich you are? In spite of how small your candle really is, you have a wick and it is lit. You have the power to light 
all sorts of other candles. Do you recognize the potential that you have? Do you realize the kind of difference that you can make in this world? I look at us as a community of Jesus people. Like, this is a small church. We don't have much wax here. But do we realize how much potential we really have? It's easy to look at other, other places and be like, oh my goodness, if we just had all that wax, it would look better, it would feel better, and oh, wouldn't that be great, but our wick is the same. Do we realize the kind of potential we have, the kind of difference that we can make in the lives of others? Do you recognize the amount of love that you have and we together have to give, the kind of grace that we've been given in order to give away? Do we realize it? Oh, the potential is unlimited. The only question is, what are you going to do with it? What are we going to do with it? Let's pray.